Well, like any other kid, I went through a variety of stages uh, for what I wanted to do when I grew up. At about five years old, I wanted to do two things at the same time. Not at the same time, but two things, two jobs at once. One was to own a 7-Eleven. Who wouldn't want to own a 7-Eleven? And the other, I wanted to be a garbage collector. Uh, well, back then, it was before the mechanical arms would pick up the, the, the cans and throw the trash in the back of the truck. Before then, if you can remember, there were dudes who used to hang on the back of the truck and would go house to house, and they could just hang there, and they could jump off. I thought at five years old, that's the coolest job that was around. So I, I wanted free Slurpees all day, and I wanted to hang on the back of cars. Like, that's the life of a five-year-old. Well, as I grew out of that and I got a little bit older, um, I decided that I wanted to be a professional baseball player, and that later morphed into a professional basketball player. This was my dream for at least a few years. But then I started to get a little bit older, and I realized that I had limitations. Not very tall, not very strong, not very fast, not very motivated, kind of lazy. What happened was I realized that my athletic gifts or any kind of gifts that I had had a ceiling. See, only a very small number of people will ever make it to professional sports to make money playing sports. I could have taken a thousand shots a day. I could have lifted weights and, and exercised and trained for hours on end. I could have gotten into perfect shape, but my relative lack of athleticism would have caused me to hit that ceiling. There was only so far that I could go. Once I realized that, I had a change of heart. And since then, since really high school, I've only wanted to do three things, to be a journalist or a writer, to work in politics or government, and to be a pastor. But there are still people who will look back at their lives and think, well, what if, kind of like Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite. If you haven't seen that movie, go watch it. He said, back in 82, I used to be able to throw a pigskin a quarter mile. Well, this was 20-some years later that he was still thinking about the fact that he didn't get put into the game by the coach, and so he blamed the coach for the fact that he didn't make it to the NFL and go to the Hall of Fame. There are people who think that way, that haven't realized that they've, there's a ceiling on athletic ability. There's a ceiling on, on how far you can actually go. It's hard for us to realize this truth, but as we get older, our dreams change from being a professional athlete or a, or a supermodel or a famous actor to being something more grounded. But we all have ceilings to our gifts. Most pastors don't get invited to speak at big conferences. Most writers don't get published by major publishing houses. Most actors and most musicians are never known outside of their local scene. But isn't it amazing, though, to know that God does not put a ceiling on his gifts that he gives to us? That there is not a point at which that we have too much of what God can give to us? See, we all smile and we all nod at a passage like this until we get to some of those later verses and then we get a little uncomfortable. We all agree that God's gifts are abundantly given to us, but then we see something that makes us question things. Ooh, not so sure about tongues and prophecies and healing. Ugh. Today may be one of those sermons that 
question what you think. And my hope and my prayer is that you come today with a, a gift of grace, especially for those who disagree with you. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're, if you're not a follower of Christ, God has you here for a purpose today. This is a, a strange passage to be here, but, but all of the Bible is, is inspired and infallible, and it's the Word of God. So all of it is good for teaching and good for training, whether you're a believer or not. Uh, my hope is that you'll hear grace coming out of my mouth today through these words. I hope that you see that when we've been changed by the gospel of Christ, we've been called to something new, something better, and that's to love one another. Called from a place where we were once dead, but then God transformed us into new creations. Uh, the apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth because they kept forgetting that unity matters in the local church. But he kept reminding them that unity cannot be built around anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can tie us together. And the gospel says that we are, are not good enough on our own and it's only through the work of Christ that we can be forgiven and made right with the Father. If you're not a follower of Christ, thoughts of instances of disunity, which I'm sure, I'm certain that you've heard of or maybe even experienced, these thoughts may come to your mind. Now we've all seen it. But just because it's a reality doesn't mean that it should happen. If you have questions about this passage or anything else, I encourage you to stick around after the service. Talk to me. This is a, a strange passage to, to begin a, a first visit on. I, I understand that. But the truth is, is that God's word speaks, and it speaks to us today. And if you have questions about this or you have questions about what God is doing in your heart, please don't hesitate to, to stick around and ask questions. So let's dive into the text this morning. The first point that I have is that if it doesn't point to Jesus, it is not a gift. Look at verses one through three. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols, or to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. There are a variety of opinions on what Paul means here. Um, in verse 2 specifically, he, he could have meant that pagans were led by idols and, and Christians were being led by the Holy Spirit. So kind of the, the sides, the different sides of that coin. Perhaps he was talking about the mysterious religions in the Mediterranean that, that when they would get into this religious exercise, they would start to make sounds that sounded like someone speaking in tongues. Whatever the reason... The main idea is that if someone doesn't point to Jesus or something doesn't point to Jesus, it is not a gift of the Spirit. These churches are full of, of things that people talk about. When, when someone says, hey, describe your church to me, now you'll hear people say things like this, dynamic music, charismatic preacher, skillful teacher, student ministry that draws hundreds by the week. You'll hear these stories from people. How many of those things have you seen, though, where the ministry falls when one person leaves? The growing church declines when their pastor goes somewhere else. The student ministry that draws hundreds of teenagers dwindles when the pastor decides to move on. It's not always this way, but, but maybe that churches are guilty, and maybe we are too, of building things on our gifts rather than building things on Christ. 
The point of preaching is to point people who do not know Christ to the foot of the cross so that they can receive the gospel message and come to Christ in repentance and faith. The point of preaching to believers is to remind them of this truth every single day. The truth of the matter is if you leave here thinking, wow, that preacher is great, or wow, that music is great, rather than wow, Jesus is great, we've done a fail, we've done a bad job. Where this ties into the passage is that some in the Corinthian church and some in churches today have made their gifts that they have into who they are and what they're known for. For some, it's a way to express themselves. I have this gift and I want people to see this. I want people to know that I'm special. Search through some churches that fall into that extreme, charismatic, bent And you'll see belief statements that'll say things like this. The the gifts of the Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, is given to believers um, after their initial baptism in the Spirit, whatever the terminology may be. But the question that I have is, what about those who've never experienced these miraculous gifts? Do we now have second-class citizens, second-class Christians? It creates these classes where some have access to the gifts and some do not. That is the exact opposite of what Paul has been saying through the first 11 chapters of 1 Corinthians. He's saying that despite all of those differences that you may have, despite the fact that you may have gifts and someone else doesn't, you guys are supposed to come and bring unity to this body, this family. You're called for something bigger than just your exhibition of your gifts. You're called to, to find unity in the church. Listen, I know we've talked a lot about unity in 1 Corinthians. It matters to God, and and so we see that in in Paul's writing, but it's also an issue that churches today deal with. The consumeristic culture of our day has brought us to a point where where if something doesn't go our way, we'll leave. If someone says something to me that I don't like, or someone looks at me the wrong way, or, or, or someone parks in my spot, or sits in my seat, or moves my stuff to another pew, man, I'm leaving. I visited a church one time, and I did not accept this job. Um, And I went into their sanctuary, and there were blankets laid on the pews. And so I asked the guy, I said, what in the world? I've never seen this. He said, oh, that's where the ladies, you don't mess with their blankets. That wasn't the only reason why I didn't go there. But that was kind of, okay. There are some traditions, and a blanket as a sacred cow is not something that I think I'm equipped to deal with. That's not healthy or mature, is it? Where we elevate our preferences, where we elevate things that we want, that's not showing unity of the body. God has called us to set aside our preferences for the sake of someone else. When we care about others more than ourselves, that's where we find unity in the gospel. So the first point is, if it doesn't point to Jesus, it's not a gift. Next, in verses four through six, we see a variety of gifts and activities. It says this, now there are a variety of, varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities. The gifts that are given to us by God are not designed or intended to be for our own benefit. Forget this list for a moment. The gifts that God has given to you, whatever those may be, service, hospitality, teaching, prophecy, compassion, all of those gifts, have you noticed that they're not for your own sake and your own benefit? 
those gifts are given to you so that you can give them away. They're given to you so that you can serve others, that you can be a blessing to others. Or we can show the love of Christ through your own life. Now notice the, that Paul uses three terms. He uses gifts, service, and activities. Gifts are the things that are given to us to function in the body. Services comes from the same word as deacon. It means to serve. It's pretty straightforward. Activities are exactly what you think too. A- activities, things that are, you're doing. And you'll see in this passage that, that God gives these gifts widely. Every gift that we're about to see and about to study is given to encourage and to uplift the local church family. Some have taken these and privatized them, and that has no place in the Christian faith. The purpose of each gift is to build up and to encourage fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what we see in the second half of verse 6. It's for the purpose of the unity of the body. Paul writes, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. In other words, everyone. People of all backgrounds, people of every race, demographic, cultural background, even religious background, people of every uh, preference, people of every ideology, every person who comes to know Christ through repentance and faith is given these gifts or access to these gifts so that they can find a place and a home in the body of Christ, in the local church. None of these gifts are more important than the other. Now, I think our church and every church would be changed forever if we grasp the idea that's undergirding all of this. And the the idea is unity. Think about some of the things that you've seen people fight about. Things where people would really dig their heels in where, no, we're not compromising, we're not moving. Were they doctrinal issues? Were they fights over truth? Or were they over inconsequential things? God has given us these gifts so that we can bless others. And I'm afraid that we've stuck our heels too far in the ground because we want what we want rather than being a blessing to others. And that's really the idea that undergirds all of this, that's, that, that Paul's writing to this church to say, listen, the unity of the body is breaking apart, and here's why it's breaking apart. God's given you these gifts to unify you, you to each other, and yet you're trying to separate. And this is where he gets in point, uh, verses 7 through 11. Earlier we saw that if it doesn't point to Jesus, it's not a gift. Then we saw how the gifts are given for the good of the entire church body. Now, We see this wrapped up in verses 7 through 11. If it doesn't benefit the body, it is not a gift. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. In these verses, Paul lists nine spiritual gifts. Now, I want to take a few minutes to talk about these quickly. And then I want to wrap it together by showing how these issues have unfortunately divided believers for quite a long time and how I don't think it's necessary or wise that we do that. So what are these gifts? 
The first one we see is the utterance of wisdom. The best way to view this is someone who is able to speak into the culture uh, with the gospel. Someone who's able to see what's going on in the world and to be able to say, no, here's how the gospel answers that. The next gift is the utterance of knowledge. Now, how it happens, I'm not certain, but when we come to know Christ, we're given a new mind. We, we see the world differently. We think differently. We respond to things differently. This involves teaching and proclaiming the truth given by God. Next, we see faith. This is not saving faith. This is not the faith that we all receive as believers because he says only some get some of these. Um, but what Paul probably means here is the, the strong faith, those, those people that you know have just faith in Christ no matter what circumstance they're in. And when we know this, there are some people who just have uh, uh, just a, a superhero-style strength of, of faith. That's what Paul's talking about, the gift of faith. Now, none of those are controversial. None. I. I don't think any of us would sit here and say, oh, I don't believe those exist today. I don't think people have strong faith. No. We see people speaking into the culture. We see people faithfully proclaiming the truth. And we know people who have a strong faith even when things are bad. We, we know those still exist. But then we get to the next six. This is where the fun happens. But we have to figure out what it meant to the original readers. That's where we start when we read the Bible. Uh, I've often heard people say after they read a passage, they say, well, what does this mean to you? And I'll say this as gently as I can. I really don't care what it means to you. It doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is what did God say? What does he mean? And what did the original hearers, when they read this, what would they have heard? That's what matters to me. So it, it, all of this, this stuff that goes on of what it means, that's individual interpretation. I'm not a big fan of that. But what matters is how would this have been read in the first century in Corinth as the church was opening the letter from the Apostle Paul? What would they have heard? What were they dealing with? This makes us feel good, though, when we privatize or personalize the Bible. But when we see this, what did they think? So the first of these six gifts is healing. Pretty straightforward. We see instances of, of Jesus healing people in the, in the Bible. We even see the apostles healing people in the Bible. So Paul's writing to the early church and he's saying that there is a gift of healing, that, that people can, can have a, a disease or sickness and they can be healed from that through uh, the power of the Spirit working through uh, an apostle. The next one listed is miracles. This is kind of connected to the gifts of healing could be giving sight to the blind or exercising demons or something miraculous. Anything that's out of the ordinary would fit into this. Next one is prophecy. Now we, you've seen those guys who have people line up on the stage and, and uh, come and smacks a guy on the forehead and the person falls down and starts shaking and who knows what happens. Or the guy who goes to a guy with a broken leg and pulls him out of the wheelchair and he starts dancing down the aisle. Like, that's, that's prophecy, these peddling ministries of healing. You probably don't argue about that very often because we kind of know that's not okay. But my guess is you've had some conversations with other Christians over tongues and prophecy. I get asked this a lot. Do they still exist today? Is this passage that Paul wrote only intended for the church in Corinth or is it valid and applicable to us today? Some would try to find this middle ground and say that prophecy is preaching. 
It's equated with the work of preaching. If you've done those spiritual inventory tests where you answer those questions and then all, all of a sudden you come up with, hey, these are my spiritual gifts. You may get the gift of prophecy. It's not saying that you're able to tell the future. It's saying that you're able to say, well, thus saith the Lord. It's more forthtelling rather than foretelling. But the examples that we see in the New Testament, and this is where we get hung up, are much more spontaneous than that. It's why Paul had to deal with worship in the church that wasn't orderly. 1 Corinthians 13.2 says that prophecy was connecting to have, having ancient or access to the ancient mysteries. So what do we do? The next gift is distinguishing between spirits. If there are false prophets or if there are true prophets, there must be false prophets. The gift is to determine supernaturally who's right and who's wrong. And then the last two gifts are equally confusing, um, are tongues and interpretation of tongues. Scholars have disagreed on the actual meaning here of what Paul was intending to say. Some say that tongues were, were something that could be understood by the listeners as, as if it were their original language. But most, though, believe that tongues were either a language that a person didn't understand or they were ecstatic sounds that were unknown to human ears. Paul says in verse 10, various kinds of tongues, which seems to be uh, intentionally written for a variety of, of reasons. One commentator wrote this, there are four categories of what was happening with these tongues speaking in churches like Corinth. First, the speakers were not delirious. They were able to control how and when they spoke. Number two, both the speakers and at least some listeners uh, were unable to understand what was said. Three, the Holy Spirit enabled someone in the church to interpret or translate the languages. And four, Paul preferred that people speak in church in languages that everyone in the church could understand. Now, here's where it gets a little dicey and where churches have split. And churches have broken up and people have left churches because of things like this. Where do we fall? Well, there's three categories of where you can fall. One would be continuation, meaning that exactly what Paul wrote is exactly what's applicable today. That all of those gifts are still present and valid and equal for today. There are lots and lots of solid churches that would take that position. A second position uh, uh, would be modification. Here some would say, well, a lot's changed since Paul wrote the letter. The, the office of apostle and prophet in the sense of the Old Testament prophet, those offices are gone. Those, those don't exist anymore. So the, the need for these tongues and gifts of prophecy and all of that ha went away with it. A third idea would be cessation, meaning that they've completely ceased. So, here's the question. Are they still continuing in the church today? I don't know. Sermon over, right? Now, I don't know, but here, here's what I take. Here's my opinion on this, and this is solely my opinion. I take an open but cautious view. I'm open because even though that the Bible does say that tongues and these things will cease, it doesn't say that they have. So how do we know? It, it doesn't give us that. It doesn't tell us exactly when they would. It just says that some, someday they will. I believe that those who believe that these gifts are still valid have a very biblical case. So I'm open, but I'm cautious for a few reasons. And I've had a few questions over the years that I've never been able to answer for myself. Outside of a few minor groups, why did these gifts, in large part, almost go non-existent? between the early church and the late 1800s, what happened? Why did they go in hiding? 
If the gifts were intended for the building up of local bodies, why didn't they play a bigger role in the history of the church? Another question that I have is that the gifts are solely given by God. Why don't we see them displayed far and wide? If we don't really have control over, over these gifts and God's giving to them as he wills, then you would think that these churches that by and large don't practice these gifts would be uncontrollably able to practice these gifts. Another question that I have um, is, is that I have dear friends who are genuine in ministry and practice. And these guys love the Lord. They love the Bible. They teach the truth. They are, are faithful to the word of God. And so these things have, have run through my mind of, of, of how can we come to two very different perspectives and, and opinions on this. And I'd even say this, I'll extend a big olive branch, I'd say that people who are continuationists probably have a better biblical case than people who are cessationists. And so you say, well, wait a minute, if the Bible is your sole authority, and you believe that the Bible has, makes a better case for, for continuation of these gifts, what do we do? It's a good question. This is the final question that I, I can't seem to answer. If the Bible is sufficient, and all prophecies and tongues must line up with what's written in Scripture, then why do we need these gifts? Why do we need tongues? Why do we need prophecy? Why do we need this interpretation? So on the other side, I've got these questions too that I haven't been able to figure out. If I hold to the Bible as God's standard, and it doesn't say they've ended, then how do I deal with that? Also, what do I do with genuine believers who use these gifts because they're following what the Bible says? That they say, oh yeah, anytime that there's tongues, we have an interpreter. That's what the Bible says. What do we do? Now, some of you may not see things the same way that I do, and that's okay. You may, you may want me to take a firm stance on this, and, and, and I understand that. But what I want you to, to do for you this morning is to offer a way that you can work through these issues um, for yourself while showing grace to believers who don't agree. See, we all have a tendency to elevate our personal preferences to standards that are much higher than they ought to be applied to everyone else. I'll give you an example. There are a variety of viewpoints of the end times that are biblical and orthodox. That, that, that we can lay out, we can have charts or very little charts, and we can have big maps and all this stuff. And, and there are a variety of viewpoints on the end times, how Jesus is going to return, what's going to happen, are we in the millennium, are we not, uh, what, what is this um, 70 weeks, all, all this stuff. We have differences of opinions. And, and sometimes that breaks fellowship with people, but it should not. That we should be able to say, you know what, brothers, we, we have disagreements, but that's okay because we serve the same Jesus and we worship the same God and we live for the same gospel and we read the same Bible. So some people, though, would say, well, if you don't agree with everything I believe on the end times, you're a false teacher. That's what I went through for a few years as I, as I was discovering and building my own theological perspectives, which surprisingly has changed even in the last 10 years. And building my own doctrinal views, I found I was getting irritated because not everybody agreed with me. I mean, after all, I'm seeing this. This is very clear to me. So what in the world is wrong with you that you're not able to see these things? I wondered why people were so foolish, so blind. See, what I was doing was I was making a non-essential issue into something that was essential. I had my theological structure, and anything that was outside of that structure was unsafe. 
So I avoided, I, I, I didn't fellowship with those people who didn't fall lockstep in with everything that I believed. Then a few years ago, Albert Moeller, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kentucky, wrote a very helpful article called The Case for Theological Triage. Now, if you're in the medical field, you know what triage is, but, but and I'm not, so forgive me if I mistake this, but what triage is, if you can imagine emergency room, and, and as people are being brought in, there has to be someone there to make a decision over what case is the most urgent. So if someone's there with a cut that needs three stitches and three guys come in with bullet wounds, they're taking the bullet victims first. That's triage. You're, you're ordering which comes first, which is the most important or the most necessary or the most urgent. And this word actually triage comes from a French word that means to sort. What patients goes into surgery first? Which ones can wait? Which ones don't even need the ER at all? And as Christians, we do something like this all the time. Think about it. What theological issues are you willing to break fellowship over? Do we end our fellowship when we have a different view of the end times? Over politics? Over music? See, we often talk about these things in the church life, but rarely do we ever think about how we think about them. And Moeller says that any theological issue can be assigned to one of three categories. Now, this has helped me so much, and I think it's on the back of your, your, your bulletin sheet that you have a, a triangle. And if not, just write a triangle. It's pretty easy. It's three sides, all equal. And this has helped me to figure out what issues are worth dying over, what issues are worth discussing about, and what issues aren't even worth fighting over at all. So let me give you these, these categories, and this is all building up to this text, but it's important to understand this. First level theological issues are the essentials. Those are the things that if you remove from the Christian faith, you no longer have a Christian faith. The virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ, meaning that Jesus is the only way. You remove those from your faith, you have removed yourself from the Christian faith. To deny that Jesus is both fully God and man, you make his death on the cross meaningless and you have no hope. To deny scripture, admits that you have nothing to stand on. Anyone who denies these first level issues is not a believer. In all my years as a pastor, and in my years as a Christian, I've never really had, I've never been involved in issues of this. I've never been involved in a, in a church issue where we're arguing over whether Jesus was fully God and fully man or whether he wasn't. We've, I've never sat and argued about the Trinity. Thankfully, where the issues come up is in that second, lef second level. And, and these second level issues uh, generally in, in churches today fall into issues of baptism. Gender roles are the two biggest ones, gender roles in the church and gender roles in the home. And what I've seen, though, is, is people elevating those second and third level issues to of primary importance. They'll say, well, we can't be a part of a church that teaches this way about this or that. I can't be in a church where the pastor and I don't fully agree on our end times view. I want you to remember something that Paul has been saying over and over again. Unity matters. It matters because God has called us to be unified around the gospel and because people outside of this congregation are watching us. When a family who is unified with a body, a, a local church leaves, 
It doesn't just impact that one family. It impacts people inside the church and it impacts people around their neighborhood and in their families. You think your neighbors aren't watching you on Sunday morning? They are. They notice when patterns change. They know when there's conflict in churches. And Paul is saying that personal preferences, that all of these things, they don't matter. Listen, what matters is a unity surrounded by the gospel. And our neighbors see us dividing over issues that are not essential. So the first, second, third tier issues uh, are views like end times, political issues, and I'd even say gifts of the Spirit. I'm not saying that they don't matter. I'm not saying that we should avoid talking about those things. Please talk about those. We need to have discussions. Let's talk about what the Bible says. Challenge one another. Encourage one another. But let us not split over these things. My take is this. The church must stand together on the first level issues. Agree to disagree on the third level issues and debate the second level issues without bringing discord, disruption, disunity to the church. In other words, the church must have unity in the essentials, clarity in our distinctives, and liberty in the non-essentials. So here's the question. Can someone disagree with me? I'm the pastor. I got the, I got the title. I got the corner office, right? I got, I got that, right? I'm preaching on Sundays. Can you disagree with me on a first level issue? And the answer is no, so long as I'm preaching strictly from the Bible. If I'm upholding what the Bible says on those primary first level issues, you cannot disagree because then you'd be disagreeing with Scripture. Again, this is, this is what the Bible says. You cannot deny the Trinity and still call yourselves a Christian. Can someone disagree with me on a secondary or third level issue? Absolutely. Can we disagree with one another? Yes. The church does not belong to me. The church does not belong to the elders of this church. The church doesn't even belong to you. The church belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. And our duty as shepherds is to train, to teach, to care, and to guide our congregation. The, the duty as a member is to encourage, exhort, disciple, and seek ways to maintain peace in the fellowship. So my encouragement is this to you this morning. I want to encourage you to show grace to those who are still orthodox in their faith, yet may disagree with you on second and third level issues. True unity comes from the gospel and nothing else. Rival factions and non-essential theological splits have no place in the church. Let's aim to show grace to genuine brothers and sisters who may disagree with what we're at. I want to close with a challenge to examine the scripture closely. See what God says about this. And no matter where you land on this, maybe you're even like me where you're saying, I'm not entirely sure, certain. Remember that the use of these gifts, like anything else that God gives to us, they are given for the sake of love. And if you go to a church that practices these gifts uh, and, and they say, man, we practice these gifts, but they show no love, they are nothing but clanging symbols. And if you go to a church that doesn't practice this and there is no love, then, then maybe they need a dose of this. Love of God and love for our Christian brothers and sisters is what bonds us and unites us around the gospel. Would you pray with me?